Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are coming to you from Franklin, Tennessee. I'm on the road, of course, speaking and traveling. Um, but I wanted to sit down with a, a new friend, Dr. George Grant, that um, many of you may not be aware of, but he's been one of the most powerful voices against the culture of death for some time now, in fact, wrote one of the best-selling books on the abortion issue, the pro-life issue, called Grand Illusions, The Legacy of Planned Parenthood, the second edition of which was published when I was one or two years old, so just incredible, um, and still today is being used widely to raise up the next generation. In fact, the review of this book said, uh, if Dr. George Grant's book, Grand Illusions, is not quite Uncle Tom's Cabin, it may nonetheless have the same galvanizing effect on the pro-life movement as Stowe's book had on the anti-slavery movement. Um, that was Christianity Today. So absolutely incredible. You wrote another book called Killer Angel, a biography of Planned Parenthood's Margaret Sanger, and now with Canon Press, where you can get it. Dr. George Grant is the pastor of Parish Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, the host of the podcast Resistance and Reformation with a Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and the cross-politic wonderful team up in Moscow, Idaho, and started the Franklin Classical School uh, Academy, which is basically an institution here in Franklin, Tennessee, um, all patiently watering the seeds of the gospel in the soil of the city, the nation, and the country that he finds himself in to do for good what the other side has so patiently and eagerly done for evil. So I want to introduce you to Dr. George Grant and discuss how we got to this moment. Um, who were the pontiffs of progressivism? What were the ideological worldview foundations um, that brought us secular progressivism today and ultimately the death of 65 million little children in their mother's womb in America alone since 1973? So we're going to have a long-form dialogue and conversation on all of these ideas because I think we have forgotten how we got here. The spirit of the age, his obsession with causing chaos, attacking the Imago Dei, and his acolytes and followers that were advancing his ideology. I think it was Chesterton who said, uh, Blessed is the man who knows not only the hidden causes of things, but who has not lost touch with their beginnings. We have lost touch with the beginnings of ideas and how we got here. So let's return to those things that we used to know. Buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Dr. George Grant, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Seth. <laughs> it's a great joy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for making time. So I told you earlier before we started recording that uh, I had not even become aware of you until last year when I was exposed to this book, Killer Angel. Uh, and then, reading your book, Grand Illusions, I realized, oh, you just kind of did a condensed version of one right. or two chapters from right. this behemoth um, into this, this shorter book. But, I mean, I born and raised in the pro-life movement. My mother was a director of a pregnancy resource center while pregnant with me. Oh, that's awesome. So I say I've been a pro-life activist <laughs> since I was a fetus. Yes. <laughs> and then go. I did the Walk for Life every year. Anyways, my point in saying that, Dr. Grant, is if anyone would know about a lot of these things as a millennial, I would. And I've been faithful to study these things, and yet I have never found something quite so damning and comprehensive into the life of this wicked woman uh, than this book. And so I want, I want to recommend that to people, of course. But, but before we get into sort of the history of ideas, Dr. Grant, um, tell us a little bit about yourself for those that are not familiar with, with your body of work. I mean, of course, I mean, our life story has many different chapters, but yeah, yeah. in a condensed form, who is Dr. George Grant and how did you end up in Franklin, Tennessee? Well, I uh, was raised, born and raised in Texas. Okay. 
and uh, in a non-Christian home, came to Christ when I was 15. Uh, at about the same time, because of all, all kinds of things in our home, uh, alcoholism and all, all mm. sorts of stuff. My coach at the time moved me out of home and I lived in a garage apartment. So I've been on my own since I was 15. Really? And wow. I um, began to grow in Christ, went off to college and really uh, had a, a, a pretty dramatic sort of time in college discipling, hosting Bible studies and so forth. Wow. Felt like I was called into the ministry, okay. but I knew, I knew that I couldn't be a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I had too many, too much intellectual ADD uh, to, to, to be a pastor. So I set my sights on, on uh, political science. I wanted to come alongside legislators and help them think from a Christian worldview perspective about cool. the issues of the day. Yeah. Um, eventually, of course, uh, God has a great sense of humor. And uh, <laughs> I wound up uh, planting churches. I've planted churches in Texas and uh, in Tennessee uh, over the years, but, but have continued that intellectual ADD and have written books <laughs> on lots of different subjects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but the pro-life movement has always been central to everything else that I do, primarily because uh, the, the, the wages of sin is death. Hmm. So death and the death-dealing ideologies of the world are always at the center of Satan's strategies. Hmm. So obviously the, the abortion movement uh, coincides with my adolescence and uh, right. teenage years. So I was thrust into the, the pro-life movement very, very early on mm. and have been involved in everything from starting crisis pregnancy centers to doing what you do now, traveling around and speaking right. at uh, CPC banquets and uh, uh, pro-life rallies yeah. and, and all of the rest. Uh, I've been involved in the rescue movement right. in yeah. the early yeah. days. <laughs> so. Uh, it's it's been central because it's central to the gospel. Yeah, uh, wow. Jesus is the Prince of Life who came to give us life uh, in abundance, yeah. uh, the waters of life, the hope of life, um, and so th that's sort of the the, the gist of my yeah. story. It was in 1972 that I first became aware of the abortion movement. Wow. I was a senior in high school, living in Dallas, Texas, and our District Attorney Henry Wade held oh, a press conference on the steps of wow. uh, the downtown <clears throat> municipal court. And I heard about this case that was soon to go before the Supreme Court. And I thought, okay, wow. this, is, this is important. Yeah, wow, senior in high school then, yeah. months before yeah. January 1973. Wow, that's incredible. Um, one of the things I often say uh, Dr. Grant is, if I, if I, if I were to drop a pile of uh, aborted children on the front steps of the offices of America's pastors, such that they had to see and walk through it to get to their office to prep their sermon Saturday night, uh, maybe they would live a little different. Maybe I could actually mobilize the church in this country to end abortion. I think some of them would live a little different. I yeah. think some of them would be outraged. Right, 
Exactly. Yep. And, and I'll tell you something, Dr. Gant, first, uh, since I was 19 or 18 when I gave my first public speaking address on the issue of, of life, and I'm 31 now, and I have had pastors very angry with me for showing abortion victim photography. I've done it on university campuses. I've done it in talks. I've, I've had to argue with churches who, who said they would let me preach on life to let them to get them to let me show a 55 second video clip of what abortion does to an unborn child. It's shocking that I can, I can elicit more energy from America's pastors to prevent me from, from exposing the deeds of darkness, Ephesians 5.11, than I can elicit from them to actually stop the deeds of darkness, to right. stop the killing of babies. It's fascinating. Right. But, so it's well said, but most people have never seen what abortion is and does to the unborn child. And those who have will often later describe it as a real turning point right. in their life and on this issue. And so it, it's not as if you needed the horror to be in your hands for you to be galvanized to protect the unborn child, but you did have a story like that. Um, and, and, I, and you tell it in your book, Grand Illusions, and it was incredibly hard to read, um, but necessary. Can you share a little bit about this next chapter in Dr. George Grant's pro-life journey? Yeah, I was already involved in the pro-life movement. I was, we were already in the process of starting a crisis pregnancy center uh, at our church. Wonderful, uh, in, still in Texas. In, in Texas, and uh, that, that uh, crisis pregnancy center network is still in existence wow. uh, to this day. Wonderful. And uh, in fact, the director of that crisis pregnancy center that we started is now still the director of oh, uh, CPC wow. uh, there in Houston. So faithful. A at any rate, we um, we were already involved, but I was I was out of town. I was in Kansas City, Missouri, <laughs> for a speaking engagement, and. Uh, I was invited by some pro-lifers to come out uh, on a Saturday morning uh, to uh, their prayer protest out on the sidewalk. Mm. And uh, one of them indicated to me that, uh, that they thought that there was medical waste in the dumpster back behind the <laughs> clinic. Oh. And so I just went to go see if it was true. And it was. Mm. Uh, there was all sorts of medical waste. Uh, and Planned Parenthood and other organizations now have very sophisticated ways to cover their crimes. Uh, they still don't uh, uh, come even close to OSHA regulations yeah. in most of their clinics. But uh, in, in, at this time, they're, they're, those OSHA regulations weren't being applied at all. Wow. And uh, so I climbed up into a dumpster, started peeling away the medical waste. There were all kinds of things up there. And then there was this bundle. And I uh, opened up the bundle, pulled away the gauze, and there was a child just thrown in the dumpster. And I would say that it was late second trimester. And uh, so tiny, but a child. Yeah. And I picked the child up in my hands and was just astonished. I mean, there were McDonald's wrappers and cigarette butts and uh, just garbage. Good Lord. And this child. At uh, that point, a security guard 
had been alerted and the, the, the scene that I portray in, in the book was yes. uh, quite harrowing. I was yelling at me, I clambered out of the dumpster wow. and made a dash uh, down the alley and out uh, shouting <laughs> to my pro-life friends, let's get out of yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, wow. at any rate, it was, it was one of those moments where I, I had evoked in my mind all of the Klaus Schindler, mm. uh, Corey Tin Boom imagery of this is not theoretical. This yeah. is a Holocaust. Yeah. Yep. Well, and the youngest baby ever born and survived, Dr. Grant, was, I believe, born in 2020 um, and late 2020, and is almost two years old now. And that baby was born at 21 weeks and one day. Um, and n n now, not that your viability has any no. any relation no, to it, your dignity or value, but when it shocks you, to, shock to, you realize to realize that this you were probably looking at a 22, yeah, 23 week old, 22, child. 23 week old child. Um, and uh, we're about to launch. I told you earlier my new organization, the White Rose Resistance. And one of the things we seek to solve is the the ignorance in the public. I mean, the the public is so ignorant about this issue. Right. And so you know, you'll say things like, "Hey, you know." Abortions happen all the time on an elective basis in the third trimester. Mm -hmm. And the Planned Parenthood priests and serviles will scream bloody murder at you. Um, the pro-choice advocates will say that the late-term abortions never happen except to save the life of the mother. Right. And Guttmacher Institute has admitted that most of third trimester abortions are for elective reasons. But, um, you know, go, going to the other end, right now we have a gubernatorial candidate, Democratic gubernatorial candidate in uh, the state of Georgia, who is saying that uh, that the heartbeat that is detected Stacey at six to eight weeks, yeah. Stacey Abrams, is uh, is faked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in order for men to dominate uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, women, yeah. yeah, it's just astonishing. It's, yeah. it's been a new talking point in the last uh, yeah. two years. It's not. A Don't heartbeat. follow the science <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah, if yeah. you follow the science, it might make you pro life. That's right. That's right. I always say, Dr. Granite on stages, I say, um, science is now a meaningless term in the lexicon of the left. Um, follow the science just means um, my very dangerous philosophical anthro anthropological view of personhood that I'm going to masquerade as biology in order to confuse the public and keep them silent and smear them as science deniers. <laughs> right. It's like usually what, when they say follow the science, they're actually meaning my philosophical view of personhood. Well, that's that, right. That, that I don't want you to expose by getting back to biological reality. Which, which <laughs> is a... A, a bait and switch program for a political agenda. Mm. It has nothing to do with science, biology, um, anything medical at all. It's all political. Yep, that's right. So that's an interesting transition point there. Um, these quote unquote political or biological or scientific discussions and debates. Uh, really often come back to more deeply held philosophical assumptions. Right. And this is a key lesson from sort of the secular moral revolution and its long walk through the institutions. These pontiffs of progressivism, if you will, these high priests of secular humanism have long peddled their very kooky, heretical, strange view of persons as just the science, baby. I, I said on, I'm saying on my tour right now, Dr. Grant, that following the science 100 years ago meant being a eugenicist. 
Right. You were just following the science of the day then. And so we need to understand and begin exposing, and the church needs to be equipped to have these conversations, that these quote-unquote culture wars are really just a a sort of camouflage or proxy war for the spiritual war. Absolutely. And we should treat secular humanism, secular progressivism, whatever you want to call it, brother, as an alternative religion. And so Schaefer wants to find humanism as the placing of man at the center of all things and making him the measure of all things. And so Sanger would write the headline of her first piece, Woman Rebel, with the tagline, no gods and no masters. To which I say, come on church, they're telling you they are God. It is an alternative religion. And so how should Christians begin to understand progressivism as an alternative religion? Because this is a lot of what led you to write this book, exposing these long history of ideas that have threaded the way or planted itself into the soil of this republic and what has happened because of that. And our refusal to till the soil, remove the weeds, and plant good seeds into the soil of the republic. Right. So h- how should Christians who are maybe new to these new political battles begin to understand this history of secular progressivism and its pontiffs? Yeah. Well, how far back do you want to go? Do we, do we want to go all the way back to the Canaanites and the Amorites? And the, uh, Why don't we do that? <laughs> be- because all of the ideas, so the, the truth is Satan has no stories. Hmm. All he can do is... Uh, plagiarize and and uh, abridge and take uh, little clips yeah. out of the one true story. You can only story. invert and pervert. Yeah. Exactly. So w- one of the things that we have to realize is there's nothing new under the sun. Mm, yeah. So m- modern progressivism is not a re- renaissance. It is a relapse. Mm. It is a return to the old ideas that have been around uh, since child killing yeah. uh, first emerged in the generations right after Adam and Eve. Wow. So we're, we're not looking at anything that philosophically is right. much different right. than the chain of being Greeks or uh, the, uh, the, the pinnacle Ma'ats of Egypt or uh, the Canaanites yeah. and their um, Nam Lugal philosophies. Or it's the all the same. It's all the same. Yeah. And uh, it, it has various revivals at mm. various times. We, we can look to people like Rousseau and Locke. They deliberately looked back mm. uh, to the pagans to revive certain ideas. The Renaissance uh, was fixed on uh, ancient Rome and Greece for its ideas about art, music, literature, ideas, philosophy, medicine, everything. Wow. So for us moderns, typically it's easy to start with Darwin or Marx. Sure. And uh, to be sure, Darwin, who actually didn't do much science, if you've ever read Origin of Species, it's a lot of observations, but not much science. (laughs) No experimentation, no repetition, no scientific method, just a lot of observation. Interesting observations, but (laughs) that's it. Uh, His uh, cousin, Francis Galton, uh, the you know, progenitor of the ideas of eugenics. Coined the term. Coined the term. It it would be easy to start there. And and their ideas percolate up. But I think really the best place to start is right around the time of World War I. Hmm. 
At that point, there had been a whole series of failed revolutions. 1848, 1870, uh, 1891. Uh, but by the time we get to World War I, the whole structure of Western civilization is being shaken. Yeah. And the opportunity emerges for radicals uh, to, to see a wedge. Mm. Uh, and we start to see the emergence of a lot of r radical communist insurgencies. Right. Uh, it succeeds in Hungary for about 18 months. Obviously, it succeeds in Russia yep. uh, for 70 years. Uh, you almost have success in Lombardy, the northern part of Italy, uh, but it, it quickly is subverted by nationalism. But one of the communist revolutionaries in northern Italy uh, was a fellow by the name of Antonio Gramsci. Right. Antonio Gramsci uh, winds up f uh, running afoul of Mussolini and he's thrown into prison and spends the rest of his life in prison. Wow. But he writes voluminously. <laughs> uh, he writes book <clears throat> reviews. He, he actually reviews G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown series. Really? Uh, yeah. I didn't he, know that. He, he just writes voluminously, but his prison diaries, mm. uh, which have been translated by Joseph Buttigieg, the father of Pete Buttigieg yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, at Notre Dame, um, he makes those available in English for the first time, but they've been available in Italian, in French, okay. uh, in German since uh, the 1930s. Wow. And a number of the, uh, the, the disciples of Marxism began to realize that barricades in the streets, uh, civil war, um, even e economic infiltration was not going to usher in the revolution. Hmm. Instead, Gramsci argued there needed to be a cultural revolution. Right. He called it the strategy of the robes. Capture the robes of academia. Okay. Capture the robes of science. Capture the robes of the clergy. Wow. Capture the robes of the courts. And begin the slow march, as he called it, toward radical transformation of the whole culture. So it's just a synonym for what we've referred to as a long walk through the institution. Exactly. It's what sometimes is called cultural Marxism, mm -hmm. because no, that doesn't. I've been told reliably yeah, that that doesn't exist. Well, Wikipedia, which you're has a been, QAnon theorist, yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia, which has now been um, weaponized, uh, <laughs> actually uses cultural Marxism in their denial of cultural Marxism. It's, it's great. It's it's like when they changed the definition of definition so that we could no longer <laughs> define right. inflation. It's, yeah, it's, the way it's not a recession. Always, yeah, yeah, it's not a recession. So anyway, um, Gramsci has this notion that if you can progressively uh, change the culture from these mm. positions of power and authority, wow. capture the media, capture the courts, uh, it doesn't matter what the populace believes. Yep. Right. It doesn't even matter how they vote. The culture mm. will be changed and the revolution will be ushered in. Right. And the idea was to overthrow all of the mores of Christianity. Yep. The, the heart and soul of it was, 
get rid of Christianity, return to ancient paganism. Wow. So we really are talking about an end goal of having uh, uh, the religion of Canaanites <laughs> fully ensconced in the swamp, in, right. in, in the corridors of power, in the bureaucracy. Yep. So for, for Gramsci, the idea was in art, music, literature, architecture, we, we need to usher in a new vision of what humanity is. Hmm. Now, a number of uh, br brilliant intellectuals in Germany, which at that time, uh, leading up to World War I and the years immediately after, was the center of the intellectual world yeah. in, in right. Western Europe. Highly educated people. Highly educated, highly cultured. So in Frankfurt, a number <laughs> of these men came together and formed the Frankfurt School. Yeah. Uh, attached to them were a number of artists who eventually joined the Frankfurt School. It was the Bauhaus movement. Okay. And the Bauhaus movement is the birthplace of that uh, horrific, barren style of international architecture where we have these uh, naked plazas and, mm. and concrete buildings and um, you know, sparse, non-decorated space because they believe that man was a machine. Hmm. Therefore, men who are machines need to live in machines. They turn the buildings into machines. Interesting. Um, so you have things like the Pompidou Center in Paris, which is, it looks like a, a giant machine. Hmm. It's uh, all of the pipes and all of the vents are all exposed and uh, the exoskeleton is on the outside and it's But this is why horrible. today, uh, you're saying that this is why today um, political and cultural revolutionaries just love to create ugly buildings? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, Gramsci called it the uglification of beauty. Wow. So that's when we start to have art that looks awful. Wow. It's when we start to have buildings that are uninhabitable. Yeah. Uh, when you walk into uh, the plaza of, say, Chicago's City Hall, hmm. You don't feel human. Yeah. It's rusted steel yeah. that soars above you and makes you small. Wow. Just like a pyramid. Wow. Or just like a ziggurat. Yep. So the idea was transform the culture mm -hmm. from the inside and thereby usher in the revolution. And the heart without of the, firing a single bullet. Without firing a single bullet. The idea of, of uh, riots in the streets and barricades would be just to trigger hmm. new authoritarian laws to clamp down on the riots in the street, but wow. uh, always sort of fomenting yeah. the riots in the street hmm. in order to have those triggers. Wow. So Gramskyism is, is now the heart and soul of progressivism. Hmm. Uh, the elimination of gender distinctions, the elimination of, of uh, uh, in, any sort of moral standards, right. uh, because that's the bread and circuses that we feed to the people right. uh, to make them complicit with all of the rest. Wow. So, and th so going right back to my question, which you, you rounded the circle beautifully, this is, this is why 
Schaefer put it as such, the placing of man at the center of all things and making him the measure of all things. Because as soon as there is no objective standard to which we're all beholden to, God himself, right? Or just eternity written on the heart of man. You could be a moralist. You could acknowledge objective truth, but forget its source. There are right. lot, you know, you got deists and other people. Or we know atheists who believe in objective truth. They just can't ground it. But they're still borrowing from the Judeo-Christian worldview Correct. to make sense of their own morality. But as soon as you become unmoored from that, then man becomes the measure of all things, which then means, of course, the political power becomes entirely subjective. It's not held accountable That's to any correct. higher standard. And so, and fascinatingly, Sanger would it, say, no gods and no masters. And fascinatingly, it means that some people can be eliminated <laughs> because they don't recognize yes, yes. The, the, the standard. That's right. And suddenly, we've got the possibility of real holocaust. Yep. You know, Pol Pot, educated in France, uh, raised up on the ideas of Gramskyism, comes back to Cambodia and he ushers in the true revolution that mm. will make man the center of all things. But in order to do that, he has to kill a hundred, <laughs> uh, you know, thousand uh, men in the first year, a million men right. over the course of five years, uh, in order to usher in this uh, this uh, liberation of man. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, I think you, you know you quote Chesterton a lot in your book, and I do. so I think there was a. A, or it might have been Hilaire Belloc, but who said um, that uh, we live in a time with all the Christian virtues gone mad right. because they've been isolated from one another. Can you, can you yeah. explain what, what he meant by that in, in application to this conversation? Yeah, that, that was Chesterton. And uh, what, what he was arguing was that all of the Christian virtues come together and balance each other out. If you take one virtue out of the context of all of the others, mm. Uh, then suddenly uh, all of those others are negated and this one virtue becomes right. everything. This is what's happened uh, with uh, the so-called modern virtue of tolerance. Uh, <laughs> yes. When that is isolated from justice or from mercy, uh, then no longer can we rescue those who are being abused. No longer can we uh, stand uh, with all of those who are being mm. discriminated against because we're being very selective yeah. about what virtues we hold up. Yes. So that's helpful too because we need to understand that the secular moral revolution and its acolytes or disciples or followers have been doing that for centuries now, right? We need equity and equality. Right? Women need equity and equality, Dr. Grant. So right. they need abortion on demand, which is why Larry Later, one of the fathers of the sexual revolution and the father of abortion, um, would, would essentially say that the total and complete legalization of abortion is the one answer to the quest for feminine freedom. Yep. So in, in other words, that you, you focus in on, on one good sort of uh, principle and you, and you worship at that idol alone, Absolutely. Which, me, which makes everything else go chaotic and mad because these virtues need one another. They Interestingly, need to be balanced. He, he was a Frankfurt uh, School disciple. Was he really? Yeah. Larry Later. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, when, when Hitler comes to power, uh, many of the members of the Frankfurt School who were Jewish had to flee for their lives. Right. And uh, they came to Columbia University um, where they were immediately deployed in Columbia, then later at Stanford, Princeton, hmm. Harvard. Uh, they become the fathers of 
the modern hippie movement uh, and the, mm. the radical yippie movement <laughs> okay. uh, and the whole social revolution, which uh, now uh, looks incredibly tame mm. compared to the kind of progressivism right. that we have in uh, Washington, yeah. Chicago, Minneapolis, right. Seattle. Portland. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I often talk about, Dr. Grant, what I want people to understand and realize is that Margaret Sanger, the founder of the American Birth Control League, later renamed Planned Parenthood, was not just the abortion gal. Right? We, we, we would err to place her in the single lane of reproductive freedom or you know or birth control or abortion she cared about all of the creeds and tenets of progressivism and she was a true there. radical she actually started there right and it, so it, i it want was, you to unpack all that but yeah. but here's why is that we need to understand that Planned Parenthood today is not just an abortion organization oh, no. right you make a beautiful point in in your books i think you say something like you know uh, bad seed bitter harvest and so if we understand the seeds that planted Planned Parenthood, then the harvest it reaps will be bitter and nasty as well. They can't separate themselves from that heritage. But, but Sanger cared about all of these things. And so birth control wasn't this attempt for her to just liberate or free women. To your point, all of these ideas were to break down sexual and societal mores to displace Christianity with the Correct. religion of humanism. And so Sanger would literally say in her Woman Rebel, her first published piece, she said, birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. Right. So, oh, so now we start to understand. And she once said that, that um, eugenics without birth control seems to us a house built upon the sands. Right. It is at the mercy of the rising streams of the unfit. So to kind of round out what you were just saying, now that man is the measure of all things and the government is God, then we get to decide who's good and who's bad. Exactly. Who we should have more of, who we should have less of. And for Sanger, <clears throat> her whole agenda, far more than liberating or freeing women, was to attack our creator, the Imago Dei, those created in his image, and to oh, displace that nasty thing called Christianity right. that, that, that it creates healthy moral inhibitions so that you can pursue liberty, virtue, and freedom. So help us understand Margaret Sanger. I want you to take us on a journey to understand this woman. She was raised in a home with a Catholic mother uh, and a radical atheist father, bitter from the Civil War. Okay. And she, uh, at, at first, was, uh, w was very faithful with her mother, going to church and all of that. Hmm. But um, Michael Higgins, her father, just poured into her doubt hmm. uh, over and over and over again. So by the time she's a young uh, woman, uh, she, she's already wrestling and searching. She goes off to nursing school. She never finished. She drops out in the mm. first year. So she never completes her training. Uh, and uh, falls in with a, a group of radicals and uh, revolutionaries. She becomes, in New York City, a part of the 
uh, the sort of progressive set that included John Reed, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Eugene Debs. Uh, Eugene Debs. Well, uh, Debs wasn't there yet, but Debs would, would become an influence upon those guys. Right. Uh, Emma Goldman would also become an influence on all of those guys. Uh, but uh, Mabel Dodge, um, and they would have these salons where they would meet and they would talk about all of these ideas. Sanger got involved in the IWW, uh, Bill Haywood's uh, extreme uh, communist uh, labor union movement. Okay. Uh, they were called the Wobblies. Uh, she was involved in a number of labor riots. So she saw the barricades, she wow. saw the riots in the streets, the burning of the businesses of uh, mostly peaceful. downtown. Yeah, yeah, mostly peaceful. And uh, so she was involved in all of that, but she had this nagging sense, uh, like Gramsci did, hmm. that this was not going to be sufficient. Hmm. How, how do you move the complacency of an entire culture? Right. And uh, so she began to, to, to think uh, more widely and uh, experimented with all kinds of ideologies and uh, um, was at the same time involved in a lot of personal immorality yeah. uh, in this circle. Uh, she uh, printed a little brochure that got her into trouble with the obscenity laws in the state of New York. Comstock laws. At the Comstock laws. And she wound up fleeing from justice to uh, the United Kingdom. She mm. goes to the UK. Now she had children already at this point, correct? She did. She did. She goes to uh, the UK and uh, she is... Uh, quickly absorbed into the radical set there in, uh, in London and gets connected with the Bloomsbury set and uh, George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. Uh, she slept her way to the top. <laughs> and there she picks up some of the ideas of, of burgeoning eugenics and... Uh, she begins to realize maybe sex and birth control, uh, maybe some form of Malthusianism mm. combined with eugenicism could be the wedge right. to usher in the revolution. So, so the whole time... Before you continue her United Kingdom journey, give us a quick understanding of Thomas Malthus. Because when you say Malthusianism or Neo-Malthusianism, that goes back to Thomas Malthus. So, right. so I want you to continue the, the England journey of her time in exile there, but who was, what are, what are the, what's Malthusianism? Thomas Malthus, uh, at the end of the 18th century, writes a book about, or really an essay, about population. He was concerned uh, at a time when there was a burgeoning missions movement uh, mm. to care for the poor, to, uh, you know, radical industrialization, it transformed central London. Wow. Uh, this is, uh, you know, these, these are the days prior to Dickens. Okay. So we, we have hard times yeah. uh, literally unfolding yeah. in uh, central England, in uh, places like Manchester and Liverpool. Uh, Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh, and London. And uh, so missions organizations are starting to form to care for the poor. Okay. 
Okay. And Malthus is thinking to himself, if, if we make all of these uh, charitable uh, steps that, uh, that they're proposing, our cities are just going to be swarmed. And so he begins to do these mathematical uh, calculations wow. and makes the assumption that, that population grows exponentially, but the resources to supply that population can only grow arithmetically. Hmm. So the population will outstrip the food supply. The population will outstrip um, you know, our infrastructure. Too many people. Too many people. And so this is the end of the 18th century. Okay. And uh, Malthus, who is an Anglican clergyman, wow. begins to argue against charity. <laughs> yeah. he, he basically says, let those people die in their filth. Yeah. It's better for them to die in their filth than it is for us to feed them care for them well, and because further then than that, our future is jeopardized. Further than that, Dr. Grant, didn't he even argue that we should arrange things in a certain way to expedite yes. the death of these unfit people? Yes. Uh, don't drain the swamps. Make sure that they, you know, they, they die. They need to die uh, because the evolutionary ascent of the elite depends right. upon the it's elimination of the, of the unfit. Right. So th that's sort of the beginning of the idea of Malthusianism. Eugenics okay. takes it one step further mm. and says that there are genetically uh, certain people who are just natively inferior. Right. And in order to advance human thoroughbreds, <laughs> we actually need to eliminate the dross, yeah. the human weeds, mm -hmm. as Margaret Sanger would later call them. Yeah. So Francis Galton, the, the uh, progenitor of eugenics, and Thomas Malthus create this toxic cocktail uh, for the intellectuals like H.G. Wells and right. uh, George Bernard Shaw and a host of others. And this is the world that Margaret Sanger steps into. Wow. And beyond that, she meets a man named Havelock Ellis. Havelock Ellis. Havelock Ellis during her exile in England. Yes. So she gets hooked up with the Neo-Malthusians. She starts recognizing the power of eugenics in her larger goal, the power of sex. But who was Havelock Ellis? Havelock Ellis was... Uh, kind of a, a, a sexual theory pioneer and a gender theory pioneer. Uh, he was just like, uh, like Al Albert Kinsey. He was a, just a, a, a very sick individual. Yeah. And, but brilliant, uh, connected with the Bloomsbury set, wrote you know, widely, had a tremendous amount of influence on people like Virginia Woolf and all of the other members of the, the uh, Bloomsbury set, uh, wow. the Sackville, uh, Sackville West and uh, Vida Sackville West and all of the rest. So he's uh, propounding these theories in uh, book after book after book. Sounds, uh, you know, really brilliant. Basically, this is the advance of, of human, uh, mm. ed, you know, evolution. And it really harkens back to the old days of the Greek bacchanals. Mm. 
If we want the glories of Greece once again, then we need to walk the steps that the Greeks walked. Wow. Uh, and so he was espousing a kind of Nietzsche-like uh, uh, human bacchanal. Right. And what Sanger saw that no one else actually saw at that time was how to connect that Darwinism, uh, that Malthusianism, that Marxism, th that radical uh, labor movement uh, of, uh, mm. of Bill Haywood, the, uh, the, the eugenics, and now Havelock Ellis, she has all of the pieces. Mm. She creates this awful gumbo that becomes the Birth Control League when she wow. comes back the next year. Uh, she launches the movement, opens a small clinic in Brownsville uh, on the northern side of Brooklyn, and all of a sudden uh, she's off and running. Wow. She now has celebrity backers. Hmm. Uh, she will soon have celebrity money, and with this, with this you know, radical cocktail of ideologies, she starts to win over universities. So Harvard University had a chair of eugenics studies, wow. as did Princeton, as did Columbia. This becomes normal. Hmm. As you said a, a little while ago, they were just following the science. <laughs> right, 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 that's right. Um, and she gets, uh, I believe she gets arrested for her first illegal birth control clinic, has to do some physical labor to pay for her crimes. Um, but she just continues the journey. She does. So she is undeterred. She's a true revolutionary. Uh, she's, uh, you know, Paul Johnson wrote a book called The Intellectuals, where he basically argues that um, the, the revolutionaries from Rousseau all the way forward uh, to, uh, to Ho Chi Minh, the, these, mm. these individuals were pathologically committed to their ideology. Mm. And nothing could deter them. We're, we're watching th this unfold even as we speak right. with the madness uh, in the Kremlin uh, in its attitude towards Ukraine. Mm -hmm. it's, there's a pathological attachment to ideology right. that blinds you to everything mm -hmm. else. So what that means is that oftentimes people like this work harder, work longer, they, they, they may despoil their bodies with mm. drugs and drink, but they are fixed yeah. on this idea. And the, the other thing is, is that they have the long view. Mm. They're willing to be patient yes. and to do the hard work over time. Yeah. You know, we want instant results. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't build cathedrals because there's no big thermometer that we can put out in front of our buildings for our building <laughs> funds. Uh, that, uh, that, that go high enough for a cathedral because right. we've got to have it now. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the radical progressives have this kind of slow onward march, strategy of the robes, uh, Gramscian approach. Margaret Sanger sees all of that, puts it together. That becomes the world's largest and best funded and most profitable nonprofit organization in history. Wow. Planned Parenthood. Wow. 
Well, to go back to the Chesterton line, that the isolation of Christian virtues gone mad, right? The power of ideology to blind you to anything else except the success of that one singular goal. Right. And so maybe later we can talk about, you know, what kind of bad theology have we absorbed that has, has allowed the left to be more committed to their agenda than we have been to opposing that agenda, to being patient and planting good seeds in the soil. Um, so Margaret Sanger begins to absorb all of these kooky, crackpot progressive theories, arranges sort of these different puzzle pieces of ideologies and worldviews, and realizes that, that sex and birth control is, is maybe the hinge right. upon which progressivism can swing. Yeah. Maybe it's the centerpiece. Maybe it's the linchpin. Maybe it's the key that will unlock the revolution. Because if we can break down these inhibitions and mores that keep evil in check mm. by appealing to our most base appetites, sex, right. then maybe we can upend society and yeah. recreate it in our own image. Um, but you talk about a term, Dr. Grant, called scientific racism, which I think is important to perhaps understand because we will levy these critiques against Planned Parenthood for being racist, demonic bigots. And they'll say, no, look, Alexis McGill Johnson, our current Planned Parenthood president, she's a black woman. You know, we, we, we have minority hiring initiatives mm -hmm. to make sure that we have an ethnically diverse <laughs> community. What are you talking about? We're racist. Look at all the black people that we put up. But, but I would actually say, oh, yes, and that was always Sanger's goal, was to use black faces to make sure that the black community that she was in large part targeting would feel more comfortable if it was being led by other black people. So there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, but this firstly, is the heart and soul of her, what she called What is Negro scientific progress. racism? And how does that play yeah. into 1939, the Negro Project? Yeah, scientific racism essentially argues on Malthusian and eugenics uh, terms that, uh, that there are in the gene pool, uh, higher and lower spectrum uh, analyses that can be done in every race. Hmm. So uh, scientific racism is not specifically aimed always at, uh, as Margaret Sanger said, Southern European Slavs, um, Africans, Jeez. and uh, Jews. Uh, because there may be some Jews, some blacks, who actually are at the top of the spectrum for their gene pool. So it, it targets those uh, inferior races, right. by and large, by utilizing the leadership, the ideological leadership of those races, uh, to facilitate the you know, the destruction. So, so we have Mao, who yeah. eliminates 60 million of his own people. Uh, we have Pol Pot, in a much smaller country, eliminates a million of his own people. Idi Amin, who eliminates a million of his own people. Uh, Colonel Mengistu, who eliminates two million of his own people. Uh, Adolf Hitler, who eliminates about a million of his own people and five more million others wow. uh, from Poland and uh, Czechoslovakia and other places. Right. 
All of that is driven by scientific racism. Hmm. All of that is aimed at purifying the gene pool, getting the gene pool so that it is better representative of the race of thoroughbreds right. uh, that we're after. So f for Hitler, who had you know, a sledgehammer approach to ideology rather than you know, a scalpel <laughs> approach like Sanger, right, right. Uh, you know, named it as the Aryan race. Yeah. But Sanger wouldn't have been that crude. She understood that uh, she was going to need to draw the whole world together because she was after a global revolution. Hmm. And so scientific racism really looks at the elimination of the lower classes right. rather than merely... Skin color. Yeah, skin color. Yeah. So she recognized variations. Yeah. And what she wanted to eliminate were uh, what she called the, 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 the morons and the misfits. Yeah, human weeds, defective human, stocks. Yeah, defective Which stocks. prevented the blossoming of the finest flowers of right. American civilization. And she, she said um, very astutely uh, in uh, an interview with CBS, uh, you, you of course will always want to trim uh, your rose bushes if you want them to Gosh. fully blossom. Jeez Louise. Well, and she would later say, Dr. Grant, that um, more children from the fit, less from the unfit, that is the chief issue of birth control. Exactly. And so what we need to understand as Christians, and even the pro-life movement that in large part does not fully understand Sanger, which is why your book is so amazing, is that not only did Sanger coin the term birth control, but it was not used as a way to just allow loving Christian couples who believe in the Imago Dei to kind of just schedule out their fertility. Right. No, 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 it was always attached Inseparable to this ideological agenda. To the goal of eugenics. Right. Um, and so I think that's important for us to, to understand. And, and it still is. Yes. If you uh, read the language of uh, the Planned Parenthood annual report, you start to realize they're still very concerned about Malthusian mm. sorts of disasters, impending disasters, <laughs> whether it comes from climate change or population right, right. or uh, diminishing crop production or whatever, they're still talking about that, that um, you know, a, a, a pie that only has so many pieces. Mm. Uh, whereas uh, what we have seen over the last century is the superabundance of the earth, right. the ability of the earth to um, replenish itself. Yep. I'm old enough to remember when Saturday Night Live started, uh, when, uh, when uh, <laughs> you know, Belushi and Aykroyd and uh, you know, Jane Curtin and uh, all of the others were doing hilarious stories about how incredibly polluted the Great Lakes were. <laughs> Lake Erie, it was, you, you couldn't go near Lake Erie, much less swim in it. Wow. This is the 1970s. Hmm. Uh, Lake Erie is a playground now. Hmm. It's wow. a delightful place now. What happened? Yeah. Well, it, we have a resourceful earth. That's a great if point. we <laughs> stop doing foolish things like dumping industrial waste yeah. into and, and untreated yep. um, you know, sewers into Lake Erie, yeah. it, it will replenish itself. 
Malthusian, uh, Malthusian ideas have been disproven over and over and over and over again. But Planned Parenthood and Washington, D.C. are still fixed on <laughs> yeah. these 18th century ideas right. that are as out of date as leeches yeah, yeah, that's good. for medical treatment. Well, with C.S. Lewis, Dr. Grant, he said, um, um, we all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that exactly. case, the man who turns back soonest is the most Is the most progressive. progressive. Uh, but these people, we need to understand, this is something I, I've been blessed in the last two years, Dr. Grant, to be in more pulpits than probably any pro-life speaker in the world in the last two years. Um, and on the issue of life all around the country, starting pro-life ministries, people getting involved with sidewalk counseling, saving babies, Christians and churches who would always say they're pro-life and never did anything about it. Maybe, maybe the early seeds of sort of an awakening. Um, but part of the importance of waking up the church in, in my ministry and calling has been to fly up 60,000 feet with, right. with our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, you need to understand where all this came from. You need to understand the proxy war against mm -hmm. God and the Imago Dei. You need to understand the deification of the self and the larger eugenic, demonic, disgusting aims that these people have had. And Sanger was not isolated from that. She no. was in that same tradition. And so what you're talking about now, fascinating contribution to this conversation, I appreciate it, Dr. Grant, is this idea of, of population control. Um, and that goes back to Thomas Malthus. We just have too many people. And right. so then you get Paul Ehrlich in 1964, who writes The Population Bomb. And his crackpot theories incited international sort of legislative adjustments. China's one-child policy. Oh, just 100 million unborn children murdered and millions of women forcibly sterilized. You had Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of India, start linking access to water, healthcare, and food to sterilization status. Right. Because we need to be sterilized, Dr. Grant. We, why? Because we have too many people. And Paul Ehrlich Follow proposed, the science. Follow the science. It's just the science, you stupid rubes, right? Science deniers, misinformation. <laughs> and uh, he claimed in Population Bomb, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Grant, that if we don't, if we don't significantly curb overpopulation in about 20 years, we're going to have worldwide starvation. Right. Well, so that was 64, I believe, Population Bomb. Fast forward to the 80s and 90s, the world population had doubled and we were the fattest generation in existence. Right. So back to just proving your point, right? But connecting the idea of killing babies, child sacrifice, abortion, to population control, um, you have people today who will literally claim that we need to fund abortion in poor countries and around the world because we have too many people. Too and many because people. we have too many people, it's harming the environment, which is causing climate change, climate change. which is angering Huitzilopochtli. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, right, the Aztec sun god who demanded human hearts and blood, and their belief was that their sun god was fighting a constant war against darkness, and if he'd lost, everyone would be plunged into darkness. It's still sacrificing children right. to the sun god. And so anyways, Nancy Pelosi just proposed new legislation the other day, you might have seen this a few weeks ago, saying that um, this, will, this will help um, Mother Earth, because sometimes she gets angry. Yeah. It's like, come on, church, this is an alternative religion. But something you talked about in your book that I didn't even know about, Paul Ehrlich sat on the board yeah. of Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. Just connecting one it all one of the, the answers to Paul Ehrlich was a former advisor to Jimmy Carter uh, in 1977 wrote a book 
called The Birth Dearth, uh, Ben Wattenberg. Hmm. And uh, what Wattenberg argued was that, um, that the idea of population explosion, Malthusianism, was not going to die despite the fact that we would very quickly see uh, a real problem demographically in countries that had imposed limits, like China, hmm. uh, where they now have to have slave labor right. in order to keep their factories running. Wow. Uh, because, and, and where uh, uh, men outnumber women almost two to one. Right. What, what do you have when you have a society where there aren't enough women? Um, men don't act well. <laughs> so uh, what, what uh, Ben Wattenberg argued was the, the, the ideas would not change hmm. despite the mathematical and scientific realities. So what would have to happen in order to perpetuate the agenda would be that the focus would have to shift from population to some other issue, like, he said, ecology, which is what environmentalism was called in those days. Right. Uh, he, he just very presciently realized, oh, okay, we're going to shift the focus from uh, the population bomb to climate change. Right. But the agenda is going to remain the same. The same, yeah. The draconian yeah. limits are going to remain the same. Because it's not about people, it's not about the climate, it's about the politics. Yep, yep. Um, the redefinition of terms, the manipulation of language. Uh, it was um, the Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels um, who once said, if you tell a lie big enough and you keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. But the lie can be maintained only for such a time as the state can... Uh, basically censor or make sure that the consequences of their agenda doesn't reach the people. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its power to repress dissent. For the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and therefore by extension the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. And so the Thank secular, you, Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, right. The secular progressive revolution today has basically just imbibed the Joseph Goebbels approach to the That's political right. and cultural warfare. But Sanger publishes her birth control review shortly before she launches the American Birth Control League. And she begins to invite people to write in her birth control review. Yeah. And uh, we could say that these might be some of the most disgusting pieces of human vermin to have ever put pen to paper. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about who were Sanger's friends? Who did she attach herself <laughs> with? <laughs> well, there was uh, Lothrop Stoddard who wrote the book, uh, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Uh, there was Dr. Ernst Rudin, who designed Hitler's euthanasia uh, policies. Right. Uh, there were all of the disciples of Emma Goldman, who were e even then uh, fomenting revolution in uh, Germany and in Austria. Uh, you have uh, people uh, like Alan Guttmacher, who come along, who are writing, mm. you know, all of these, uh, these eugenic propaganda pieces. Uh, she holds a, a, a global uh, birth control eugenics conference in New York City and publishes the papers. And they're, wow. they're so scandalous. I mean, to read them today, you think to yourself, 
how on earth right. could anyone believe these things? Right. Uh, but among them were five pastors, wow. a Roman Catholic priest and four uh, Protestant pastors wow. who presented right alongside uh, all of these uh, radical revolutionary socialists, Nazis, etc. Syncretism. Syncretism. Wow. wow. Because again, uh, it is an alternative gospel mm. uh, aimed at this radical transformation of the world uh, to become the worker's paradise uh, <laughs> that Marx and uh, others imagined. Yep. Um, I want you to talk about the role of myth historically. And so this was a fascinating contribution and point you made in your book, Dr. Grant. Um, you dispel the myths of Planned Parenthood beautifully in your book, Grand Delusions. You demythologize this and you debunk their lies about sex education, about racism, about women's health and the safety of abortion, uh, and all of their broader agenda. Um, but you make an interesting point tying it all together, just like you explain the history of ideas when it comes to eugenics. You also explain sort of the history behind myth weaving and the power to form myths in order to um, justify certain new societal norms and to keep the people apathetic and asleep. Um, and then you tell the story of J Jeroboam in scripture. It just fascinated me. I, I wanted you to unpack a little bit of that because once again, if, if we don't understand the strategy of the enemy, then we won't be able to defeat him. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about historically the role that myth plays, how Planned Parenthood has imbibed that same strategy and, and sort of some biblical examples of the power of that? Well, one of the things that we know is that human beings are made to respond to story. Mm, yeah. So in uh, places like um, Deuteronomy, uh, Moses, uh, lays out uh, the standards in the Shema, the, the standards of, of what it means to uh, faithfully obey the commandments and the statutes of the Lord our God. He says, you're going to go into a land uh, and take possession of houses that you did not build and vineyards you did not plant and wells that you did not dig. Mm. Uh, in that day, do not forget the Lord your God. Mm. Uh, and then there's this really interesting shift from a list of all of the things that we should do. Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, you know, uh, take uh, all of the statutes and uh, teach them to your children when you walk by the way, when you sit down, when you rise up, all of that stuff. It, then we come to the shift and it says, now when your son comes to you in times to come and asks you, what do these mean, these commandments, these statutes, and mm. these laws? Then you shall say to your son, and what he tells is the story. The story of captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt. Right. Uh, Eudora Welty, the, the, the great southern woman of letters of the last generation, always used to say, if you want someone to know something, tell them. If you want someone to understand something, tell them again. 
But if you want to, someone to love something, tell them a story. Right. So a myth can be true or false. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, argues that the gospel is a true myth. That's right. Uh, meaning uh, that it is the story of the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes from eternity past to the present and into eternity future. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we're familiar with are, are myths that are uh, lies with a story attached. Yeah, 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 well said. So oftentimes you will notice in debates, conservatives and Christians will rely on statistics. Yes. Facts. I have noticed this. But when it comes time for the radicals and the progressives to testify, pathos, they tell stories. Yeah. They tell stories. And they build their mythos <laughs> around uh, those stories. Yep. Forget about the facts. Let me tell you about my neighbor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget about the facts. The method, Let yeah. me tell you about how I grew up with a single right. mother and right. you know, what, whatever the story the is. A micro-narrative. Yeah. yeah. So let's not have any facts that surround uh, this uh, man who was beaten by the police and why they were beaten by the police and what the circumstances were and the buildings that were burning around them as they were beating this man. Yeah. Let's tell his story. Right, right. So myth is incredibly powerful. Uh, this is one of the reasons why Jesus told parables. Right. He told stories. Sometimes the stories, as he told his disciples, were there to veil the truth, and sometimes they were to reveal the truth, but the stories are incredibly powerful. Yeah. Progressives have learned how to tell stories. Hmm. They understand the power of story. Right. Uh, read a New York Times article about the abortion issue. What, it, <laughs> what is it going to be? Is it going to be facts? Is it going to tell us about gestation theories? Is it going to tell us about gestation facts? No. Right. It's going to tell us stories. Yep. That mythological you know, world that, that we have created becomes the arena into which the gospel must enter mm. because the gospel brings light into darkness. Yeah. And we illumine the false myths and we cause the true myths to be adorned uh, with love and kindness. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And you tell the story of Jeroboam in scripture as kind of a biblical example of someone who started myth weaving in order to shore up his political power, personal influence, right. and his kingdom, which is basically a copy paste to what Planned Parenthood has done today and for the same reasons. And it's a copy and paste of what we see in Mein Kampf. It's a copy mm. and paste of what we see in Mao's Little Red Book. Uh, it's a copy and paste of what we have seen over and over and over again. How many times have we seen um, these tyrants emerge in history saying, I've come to liberate the people. <laughs> and th those of you in the people who I wish to liberate, who don't wish to be liberated, we're going to eliminate you. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's well said. Um, so let's wrap up Sanger's life then. 
um, just so we kind of put the bookend on her. So she realizes after the, after the Nazi Holocaust that, uh, ooh, uh, the term eugenics kind of got an kind of got a negative connotation now. <laughs> it's not as welcome in the halls of intelligentsia. And so um, I, I should probably start renaming some of my organizations and efforts here. And so they change it from the American Birth Control League to Planned Parenthood. Uh, can you take us from that point? Because I, I know she got remarried um, and continued her horrifically... Uh, carnal desires of the flesh life right. um, and then we get Alan Guttmacher so can you kind of wrap up her life so we kind of understand yeah uh, one of the things that she did she she divorced uh, Bill Sanger and uh, wound up in a series of affairs but but married the the tycoon who created 3M and thus married into great wealth, which helped fund all of her efforts. But wow. also, b beyond her personal wealth, uh, she was able to tap into the circles of great industrial wealth. Right. This is the beginning uh, of uh, the time when uh, the big, big corporate entities are forming their foundations right. uh, as a means to advance their political agendas. It was kind of a hidden way to do lobbying mm -hmm. uh, by the use of, of funding grants. Right. Um, well, and the Rockefellers. So the Rockefellers Ford, and the Ford Carnegie, and Carnegie, all of those huge foundations. Huge funders of eugenics. Exactly. Right. And huge funders of all of the things that kind of support eugenics. Mm. If, uh, if you have a major... Uh, uh, car assembly plant come into a community. Uh, it's not just the people who are employed by Nissan or uh, Volkswagen mm. or uh, General Motors or Ford right. uh, or Tesla. That no, what you've got are all of the small parts, the machine shops. Right. Uh, you know, there, there are a thousand smaller entities that uh, that come around. So eugenics is built up around a thousand other entities. Hmm. You know, in the salon with uh, Margaret and Bill Sanger in those early days uh, was. Uh, uh, was the, the founder of the American Civil Liberties Union. Really? Uh, the yeah, ACLU? Uh, Baldwin, who, wow. who started the ACLU. And uh, early on, the ACLU was closely allied yep. with this eugenics movement. And to this day, yeah. uh, Planned Parenthood and the ACLU are close, yeah. close allies. So you've got a host of these things. All of these are being funded uh, by these corporate foundations. So Margaret Sanger gets introduced to that world. She had already wow. been around uh, people like Will and Ariel Durant and, and others in sort of the, the celebrity world of, of the intellectuals. Now she has connections with industry, wow. uh, which opens the door uh, simultaneously to Hollywood. Hmm. And... So Margaret Sanger just taps into the money and she starts building her affiliate network, ch changes the name from the Birth Control League to Planned Parenthood, launches programs like the Negro Project, uh, which 
uh, utilized primarily Southern uh, ministers mm -hmm. of African-American churches uh, to propound the ideas of eugenics without using uh, the, the term eugenics. Wow. <laughs> and the organization just grows like topsy. Yep, yep. And well, you, you quote a couple of the field directors of the Negro Project in your book, which I've been sharing on my tour. Um, for the White Rose Resistance Life Tour, exposing some of the history of all this stuff. But you had some of the Negro Project directors say things like, um, there is a great danger that we will fail because the Negroes think that this is a plan for their extermination. Hence, let's appear to let the colored run it. Uh, wow. In other words, what we're doing is so kind of blatantly obvious to people right. that we kind of need to make sure that, that they don't all become aware of the eugenic racist demons that we are. Right. So we'll just put black faces at the front. And that strategy has remained the same today. Yeah. So you have the Raphael Warnocks and the, yeah. you know, even well, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Uh, yeah. signed on yeah. with Margaret Sanger. Really sad. Yeah. So, you know, yep. the Obamas are big cheerleaders for uh, the, the whole yep. panoply of ideas yep. that Planned Parenthood has And unfortunately propounded. today, Dr. Grant, and I get a lot of heat for, for naming names, but I think it's past time we do that. You have people today like Lecrae and Jackie Hill Perry right. and other black Christian quote-unquote leaders. Lecrae performed at a get-out-the-vote rally for John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in the special election runoff yeah. for Georgia, which may, means they both won, which made the Senate go 50-50 with Kamala Harris as the tie-breaking vote. So I don't think it's, it's unfair or hyperbolic to say that Lecrae has a lot of baby blood on his hands yep. for helping drive the vote for a man who calls himself a pro-choice pastor and pastors at Martin Luther King Jr.'s former church. And so you have black people today, unfortunately, who even call themselves Christians, not to mention the secular black leaders, Dr. Grant, Christian black quote-unquote leaders who are fulfilling the role Margaret Sanger penned for them. Right. And I know that's a hard word for the church but to thankfully, hear. But thankfully, there are those who are beginning to sound the alarms. Amen. And uh, thankfully, we have Elvita King and others <laughs> he is wonderful who, are, who are, you know, Standing on the rooftops. Yeah, Mark and, Little, Candace Owens, yeah. Brandon Tatum, Larry yeah. Elder, and Clarence Thomas. Yeah, uh, Clarence Thomas. Yeah, that. that. <laughs> so, you know, a part of the task that we have before us is to expose the wickedness and demonstrate why it is these ideas have come to dominate. Hmm. Most Americans think that cultural changes happen so fast, right. you know, uh, that uh, our local you know, library can have drag queen story hour. <laughs> right, right. How, how did this happen? Yeah. Seems like it just happened so fast. It hasn't happened fast. It has happened very slowly over a long, long time. period of time. Yeah. Um, but the other part of the task, and I would contend the most important part of our task, is to demonstrate why it is the gospel has been so impotent mm. in our day Good. Talk to about counter that. these ideas. Yeah. Um, everything from bad eschatologies okay. uh, that cause us to just give up on the future, right. uh, all the way... The house is burning, get the kids out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the house is burning, get the kids out. And, and as a result, we're prone to, uh, you know, just swallow hook, line, sinker, fishermen, pole and all, yeah. uh, 
ideas like the Benedict Option, which is you know run, run and you know hide and yeah. and take cover. As much as I loved Rod Dreher's "Live Not by Lies," yeah, "Live by Not by Lies" is a, great. It's a beautiful, phenomenal book. Father Kalakovic and the whole thing, but, but he's the fully on board with the Benedict Option. Yeah, so. What we've got to realize is we've got to go all the way back. The reason that we have such an impotent gospel mm -hmm. is that we have a truncated gospel. Good. We start our gospel at Genesis 3 mm -hmm. with the fall. But the gospel begins, as Paul makes so clear in Colossians chapter 1, the gospel begins in Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. God made the world a certain way on purpose. He creates these creation orders or right. these creation mandates. And, and there's 20 some odd of them in the first two chapters. This is the way God intends the world to be. Mm -hmm. uh, he intends for us to understand the creator-creature distinction. Yeah. He intends for us to understand that he has called all things out of nothing. He intends for us to understand that creation itself is good and not bad. Mm -hmm. He intends for us to understand that he's created us male and female after his image. He intends for us to understand that marriage is intended to fill the earth yeah. with children. All of this is a part of Genesis 1 and 2. Mm. Paul begins his explanation of the gospel in places like Ephesians 1, in uh, Romans uh, 1 through 4, in Colossians chapter 1. He begins by saying, uh, understand this, Christ ordered all of these things. Hmm. He is preeminent yeah. over all of these things. All of these things, of the whole world is held together by his sovereign hand. Wow. And that's the beginning place of the gospel. So, if we're not solid hmm. on things like what is creation for, what are men, what are women for, hmm. If we don't understand the creator-creature distinction, if we don't understand the character and nature of marriage right. as God's plan, as Ephesians six make, 5 and 6 make plain, yeah. then obviously we're going to have a real good, feel-good, happy, clappy gospel, <laughs> but we're not going to have the gospel of the Bible. That's good. And the result is that we're able to preach therapeutically to the masses, wow. but we're able to entertain the masses uh, with a kind of I'm okay, you're okay theology hmm. and miss the impact of the radical transformation that is intended when the gospel of Christ and his redemption is applied to every detail of life. But Dr. Grant, um, I was told my entire life growing up that Christianity is not political. We're to preach the gospel. But you see, our church, we don't do politics. <laughs> yeah, you know, Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. mine. <laughs> yeah, that's good. When Jesus was confronted with the uh, religion and politics uh, mm -hmm. question, uh, it was over taxation. 
And uh, Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. What Jesus was saying is, render Caesar unto God because Caesar is God's. Mm. Wow. In the same way that the devil is God's devil, Caesar is God's Caesar. So render unto God Caesar. That's good. The way my pastor Rob McCoy puts it, Dr. Grant, is to say that the church has been waiting downstream to pick up human heartache that they helped create through their political apathy upstream. Right. And so part of- We need to be upstream before people fall into the stream. Yep. Pluck them up, rescue them before they get into the stream. And we can only do that if we recognize the creation mandates. That's right. And begin the gospel from the beginning. This is what Christ has come to restore. He's come to restore all things. This is what it looks like when all things are restored. Yes, so Margaret Sanger, Francis Galton, Charles Darwin, Madison Grant, Leon Whitney, Lothrop Stoddard, Thomas Malthus, these people have Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci, uh, Pete Buttigieg today, um, the uh, Bill and Melinda uh, Gates, Gates, the Hewlett David, or the Packard Foundation, the, the, the the new Carnegie's, right? Uh, The the new Fords of this generation that still fund eugenics. These people have been faithfully contending upstream. Absolutely. And and we have been like Lot in the church for too long. We have given over our posterity to the sexualized, degenerate mob in order to remain relevant, to keep our place at the table, to not be reviled, to make sure that Christianity is attractive. Um, and now, in these last two years, we're starting to go, wow, what have we wrought? Um, but, as but you know what's really attractive? What's please. really attractive? Now, we've seen it during the time of COVID. Yeah. Churches that preach the gospel unapologetically. That's right. Churches that preach the manhood of men, the womanhood of women, uh, the glory of children, uh, the wonder of imagination, the beauty of art, uh, the glory of flowers. Those are the churches that are exploding with growth. God honors it. What's what's going on with the mainstream uh, uh, churches in America? The Episcopal Church of America has basically become a real estate company. Wow. They're selling off their properties to become nightclubs. Wow. Yeah. As we wind down, Dr. Grant, I, I want to end on, a, on maybe some hope. Of course, we've talked about a lot of things, and I appreciate all of your time. Um, you're a renowned expert in the life of Thomas Chalmers, um, and you've written extensively on him as well. I don't know if that's where you want to go or if you'd like to go somewhere else, but what I wanted to ask you was, who are some saints, who are some heroes that we can look to in this, what I, I believe is a Kairos moment mm-hmm. in America for the church, um, for the unborn, for the country, that we can look to um, who can give us lessons on how to maybe get out of this situation that we're in before it's too late and maybe, maybe even give us the hope of what... Abraham Lincoln would call a new birth of freedom. Yeah. 
Well, we can go in a thousand different directions. <laughs> I, I wrote a book years ago called Third Time Around, which is the history of the pro-life movement mm. from the first century to the present. Wow. And uh, basically, I just told stories of the great heroes of the faith. Mm. And in every age, the burgeoning of churches, the burgeoning of the gospel was always counter-cultural, yeah. uh, but it always birthed revival but it always came at great cost. Mm -hmm. uh, you think of the story of William Wilberforce. Yeah. His entire life was devoted to the abolition of slavery. He's on his deathbed when, uh, yeah. when he gets word that the final bill. He spent his entire life. Yeah. Uh, that kind of perseverance is what we have a great dearth of in our yeah. day. We need pastors who are willing to say, over the next 35 years, mm. I will be unwavering and courageous. Wow. Uh, that's what Thomas Chalmers was. Mm. Thomas Chalmers was actually converted while he was a pastor. Mm. He had been a pastor for eight years before he had this, his radical conversion experience, and it completely turned him around turned his little church around in Kilmeny, Fifeshire, Scotland. Okay. Uh, he, from this tiny little, um, this rural village, became the most renowned preacher in the English-speaking world, wow. simply because he believed the gospel and he applied the gospel. Hmm. He started mission societies and Bible societies. He cared for the poor. He eliminated the poor laws in his uh, rural parish. Eventually, in 1815, the year uh, that the Napoleonic Wars ended, went to Glasgow, and in the center of the industrial city did exactly the same thing. He demonstrated wow. that the gospel at work transforms culture hmm. as well as human hearts. Wow. Uh, he raised up a whole generation of men who then scattered around the globe. Um, I remember that the first time I went to Kirkuk, Iraq, um, just after Saddam had fallen for a, a Bible conference at a little Presbyterian church in the heart of Kirkuk. I remember coming through the walled um, gates there um, and seeing a plaque on the wall of what looked like a little Scottish chapel. Hmm. I walked up to the plaque and sure enough, in 1842, this church had been planted by the disciples of Thomas Chalmers, wow. who had scattered around the world to China, to India, to Africa, uh, all across the world to bring the, the, the gospel to bear. Hmm. And there I was, two centuries later, wow. uh, looking at this, uh, this marvel yeah. uh, that was the, the work of the gospel because of perseverance. Yeah. Uh, that's, that little church uh, now is the center of a new movement of classical Christian schools wow. in Kurdish Iraq, uh, where we're training in one school 1,500 students, in another school 800 students, in another school 500 students to be the next generation of Christian You're leaders in Iraq. I started them. Wow. So, uh, you know, this next week I'm going to Egypt. I have 88 uh, master's students and 18 doctoral students that I'll be teaching and training in Egypt 
to be the next generation wow. of leaders in that strategic part of the world. Yeah. That's the vision that we've got to have. Mm. That's the vision that Thomas Chalmers gave us. Yeah. That's the, the, the blueprint. Yeah. Uh, he once said, uh, no matter how large your vision is too small. <laughs> I've seen that in the signature of your emails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. That's the picture that we have to have. Do we believe mm. that Christ has won the victory? Mm. Do we believe that the gospel changes things? Yeah. Do we believe that the flowering of art, music, literature, ideas, architecture uh, that we have seen in Western civilization in the past mm. is a repeatable work of the gospel for the days ahead? I do. Mm. Well, Dr. Grant, I got to say, you're starting to sound a little bit like a Christian nationalist. And uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, who replaced Circleback Saki, just informed me that you are the greatest threat to freedom and democracy today. You're an ultra-MAGA Republican, a theocrat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wonder how she knows what my voting record is. <laughs> yeah, isn't that, isn't that funny? I always say that the only theocracy in America today is the theocracy of secular progressivism. Absolutely. And, and humanism. Absolutely. The question is not, will there be the a religion or morality? Yeah. But which one? I mean, who controls the universities? Who controls yeah. uh, the big hospital chains? Who controls the media? Who controls sa uh, social media? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we, we can't get a word in edgewise yep. uh, without them putting some flag on our social media posts. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not buying it that a couple of little churches scattered around the, the country are America's greatest threat. Yeah, well, we stand on the shoulders of giants and we think that we're flying and then these revolutionaries attack the very premises, foundations, and worldviews that allow them to articulate their degeneracy in the public right. tour in the first place. It's incredibly yeah. ironic. They need to read Tom Holland's Dominion. Uh, this non-believing uh, Greco-Roman scholar mm. who came to the realization, oh my goodness, my ability to not believe and to practice my immoral life <laughs> comes directly out of Christianity. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's called stealing from God. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, the Promethean impulse. Roe v. Wade is overturned. Uh, something I was told in my generation, Dr. Grant, would never happen. It's settled law, get used to it. And not only did we achieve a massive victory in the culture war, but we achieved the one that we were told was the least likely to right. ever happen. Right. And so I've been dwelling on that and realizing, you know what, we're more powerful than we think we are. We need only speak, we need only act, we need only stand, and we need and to move upstream persevere. and persevere. persevere. And so I, I wanna finish with um, the great theologian Gandalf the Grey, uh, and then I want you to leave us with some parting words, but in Return of the King, uh, Gandalf has this powerful line that I think so beautifully summarizes everything we just talked about. He said, other evils there are that may come, for Sauron himself is but a servant or emissary. Yet it is not our part to master all the tithes of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know so that those who live after may have clean Amen. earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> no one liked Tolkien to sum it no up. No <laughs> one liked Tolkien to sum it all up. 
Uh, it's a reminder for all of us to stand fast in grace, to run to his mercy, to lay hold of his hope, and to endure for his coming. Dr. Grant, where can people listen to you describe these beautiful truths on podcasts? <laughs> podcasts on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Uh, I have something called uh, Resistance and Reformation where I tell the stories of, uh, of the past. Wonderful. And uh, I have another podcast uh, that's, uh, that's available on iTunes, the Stand Fast Cast. Stand I fast, uh, yeah. have a monthly words uh, a sort of episode on world radio. Hmm. And of course, sermons are all available as well. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. Well, we only have two of your books here today, Grand Delusions, Legacy of Planned Parenthood, published before I was born, second edition when I was one or two years old, and then your book, Killer Angel, the biography of Planned Parenthood's Margaret Sanger. But you have written dozens and dozens of books, such wonderful contributions to the church that we need to return to uh, those things that we used to know, uh, those things our founders called self-evident, axiomatic, things that were taken for granted um, because you have to start somewhere. First things. Amen. First things. So thank you for defending those first things, for articulating those first things, to couching it into the biblical worldview, and to explaining that these culture wars were really just always a proxy war for the spiritual war. Amen. And if the church can't stand up and preach in that square, then what are we here for? It's exactly right. Bless you. Thank you, brother. Thanks for the time. Stand fast. Stand fast. <laughs> Thank you guys for tuning in today. Um, I hope you enjoyed that long-form conversation, and we'll be uh, cutting this up, and hopefully the Gen Zers with 60-second uh, attention spans can somehow be blessed <laughs> and spurred on towards 30-second or 30-minute conversations as well. Uh, to uh, connect with me and uh, see my speaking schedule or book me for an event, go to sethgruber.com to become an ally of the White Rose Resistance as we, build, re, we rebuild the White Rose Resistance for this generation against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion. Go to thewhiterose.life, thewhiterose.life. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs>